Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Well, welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California today. And as always, I'm joined by uh, Bob Bazenko, and I'm in Houston right now looking forward to a really great interview. And so today we have a very exciting interview. I'm very excited about it. Uh, I'm a longtime fan of the person we're talking to today. Uh, we're going to be talking with Casey Neal, who is a, a Portland, Oregon-based singer-songwriter known for blending politically oriented folk with Celtic punk country and other styles. Casey's uh mostly been based in the, originally from the East Coast, but mostly been based in the, in the Pacific Northwest for a long time and sort of like emerged through the forest defense and a lot of 90s political stuff in the political, in the, in the Pacific Northwest. And so we're going to be talking about that today. So Casey, uh, and, and also we'll be talking about Casey's, uh, has two new, has two forthcoming albums that we're going to be talking about. Uh, and we're just going to have a great interview today. Uh, Casey, welcome to the Green and Red Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, maybe just to kind of kick it off. Let's go back to the basics. You want to tell us a little bit about your background and maybe how you got into music? Um, let, we can start there. Yeah, I mean, I just, um, you know, uh, somewhere around the age of 10, I heard Joan Jett. <laughs> Thought it was great. Um, and yeah, I, I started taking guitar lessons, um, you know, kind of got some fundamentals the teacher i had was um fl- played a lot of flamenco and and was sort of really music theory based and was frustrated with his students that wanted to play zeppelin um but was a wonderful is a wonderful man and um so uh you know in this yeah and so i just kind of learned and then got that fundamentals and then kind of lost it in as a teenager just sort of like um drifted off and other things, but always played a little bit. And then I was in Olympia, moved to Olympia, Washington uh, in 1989, which was a musical smorgasbord that was amazing. Um, And I guess I, you know, started to write songs, but it was, they were all really, I couldn't, couldn't sing very well. Um, That was never part of um, how I, you know, uh, what I learned in music. And then I got involved in the environmental movement and then started to sort of write songs about it and was sort of becoming a better singer. And, and then it just kind of evolved, evolved from there. So. Is there anyone like who um, you listen to a lot from a political viewpoint, uh, Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, anything like that, that really kind of inspired you or. I mean, some ideas. I think most consistently throughout my whole life, it's been Joe Strummer. Um, Perfect. But yeah. The, the clash um, certainly in line with, um, with those other fellows as well. Um, but I think there's, I mean, I think there's an interesting thing about growing up in the eighties and people always talk about, you know, the music of the sixties and the protest songs and all this stuff. And, you know, for years I've gotten it of like press or covering a show of mine. And, um, you know, it's, <clears throat> I've done a lot of political music. I've done a lot of non-political music, although there's the thing about that, that Pete Seeger always said was like, there's no such thing as a, as a non-political song. The minute you have two people in a room, you have the body politic and, you know, every song is about two people in a room. Um, so, um, but, you know, being somebody who wrote 
politically left songs a lot. Um, you know, the if people in Arts Weekly or something is doing a blurb on the show, and just for years, everyone's like, you know, you just constantly run into this thing of like, you know, echoes of the 60s protest thing. And it's like, you know, I grew up in the 80s where it's like the the if you think about some of the music and even a lot of the new wave and stuff, it's like Tears for Fears Shout, everything that REM ever did. The Clash were really an 80s band in a lot of ways. Um, and Tracy Chapman, the Indigo Girls, all these people that like came up at all of that is like deep political content in all of those artists. And they were all really popular. Um, and so like that's that was sort of my foundation. And then you get into like the later eras of Fugazi and 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 punk and things that happened. But, um, you know, that that was really the foundation for me. And would you say that, you know, you're you're in school in Olympia, I'm assuming Evergreen and you know, the environmental movement is particularly on the West Coast is is like very is a, is a there's it's a surge. It's a grow. It's this organic thing that's going on. And would you would you say that there's any sort of like moment or politicizing moment where you decide to get involved in that? And then and then like a lot of your songs are actually sort of um like I think about songs like Riff Raff and Vincent on the Ruins are sort of like almost anthems for like Earth First mm -hmm. um, in, uh, since then. And I'm wondering if there's any sort of politicizing moment that led you to that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was, um, I think my politics were pretty even well-formed as a teenager. I mean, not, not well-formed because I was, you know, you're always learning. Um, and, and your, hopefully your politics are always evolving. Um, but there was a moment when, um, a friend of mine and I were camping in, um, in the Olympic mountains and it was actually, um, and we were out there, it's near the whole rainforest and went for, and we went for a hike in the whole rainforest and there's this beaut, you know, it's one of the most beautiful places in the country. It's just these stunning, if anyone's never been there it's just these massive trees and they're all like draped in moss and it goes up this huge beautiful river valley into the olympic national park and um and it's just really moving place to be um and but you know we were like 17 or 18 years old didn't did not have our shit together at all didn't have a we're trying to um you know boil water for our dinner but over a campfire and we didn't have a lid for the uh, for the pot, which it, that takes a really long time <laughs> if you don't have a lid, you know. And um, there was this woman in the campsite next to us, and she took pity on us and came over and had a lid for us and helped us cook. And um, and then we started talking to her, and she just kind of went deep into the timber wars and what was happening. And there, there you are in the Olympic peninsula where it's essentially already over. Like the, um, you know, these towns had been logged out. Um, it was ITT, it was warehouser. Um, and they, uh, it was national forest land. They clear cut the bejesus out of it. And then what's not, and then you go into the national park, which is preserved. And you have this just stark contrast between these like moonscapes and then, um, and then the forest itself. And then you also have these burnt out towns with, you know, um, with mills closed and everything else. They, they just cut and run. And so, um, but of course that was actively happening elsewhere all over the Northwest. And so she kind of gave us the whole lowdown on it. 
and gave us the lowdown on earth first and all of these things. And so she, it was this kind of moment um, that where it really just was like a, a deep dive on what, what it all was. Um, and then we was, it, it couldn't have been in a more perfect place to sort of see this contrast of, and see the, the um, environmental and, and political forces that were having, you know, that had led to this. And, um, and then I think around this time there were road shows that were happening, these earth, earth first road shows that would come through. And um, there was one called green fire and it was a guy from Nevada city, Dakota Sid Clifford uh, and his son backed him up on a whole range of instruments and Dakota Sid wrote great songs. He did a lot of stuff with Utah Phillips over the years. Um, and then a, a activist named Roger Featherstone who kind of did a um, sort of Dave Foreman esque, you know, here's the here's the beauty of the wilderness here's the destruction of the land here's you know all the things that earth first was working on ranching deforestation um and it was a really powerful show in uh in olympia with you know and they had a big screen like showing these pictures of all these beautiful places so the rockies northern california and i walked out of there like that's what i want to do um and so it was a combination of those two things and then redwood summer was that summer and i on a whim one day a friend of mine and I drove down and went to a rally in Fortuna I think it was one of the first ones and um you know so there was Judy and Daryl and all these people that um Judy Barry and Daryl Cherney and and Joanne Rand was singing and there's this um uh it was just and I just sort of got swept up in it um so then and then in Olympia I got involved with our local uh, Earth First chapter, which was actually a lot of musicians, is a band, Citizens Band, who are wonderful and wonderful people. Um, I love them to death. And uh, they work, they're kind of like, uh, they covered a lot of songs by a lot of the Earth First troubadours, and they wrote great songs themselves. And they were kind of, um, they had a lot of similarities, like the the Austin Lounge Lizards, like that kind of humor and and wonderful sort of hope combined with cynicism and and um they're just the best and uh so then we sort of got involved in local actions and things like that and and then i just started as i got swept up in it i started kind of writing songs about it and i've been trying to sing for a while and then it just kind of went from there yeah i'll i'll, I'll say that the the first time i heard dancing on the ruins of multinational corporations i was actually at an earth first camp in west virginia mm -hmm. uh, and and the whole crew busted out guitars and sat around the fire and sang it. It was a sort of like powerful, inspirational moment for me, actually. Um, during the 90s, I actually felt like when we had these, there was a certain level of hope. And maybe that was just me because I was like in my 20s and in the 90s. And I felt like there was still like a level of hope to um, be able to kind of like head off some of these like worst effects of, you know, this environmental crisis. And um. I'm wondering how, if, if your music, some of the music you put out today, where it seems like the environmental crisis has only grown worse, if there's um, any sort of like hope or inspiration that you take to put into the music from what's happening. So it definitely seems like movements have only gotten bigger and bolder in, in many ways. But I'm wondering, um, because your music in some ways is about community and camar camaraderie, and but also like resistance to this like apocalypse. I'm wondering... If there's any like what your sh the shift has been for you i mean it's like 20 something years ago so yeah i mean um you know i don't know how much we want to get into others this other stuff but you know i sort of um 
I kind of veered away from, you know, I've, I've gone down sort of lots of musical wormholes in my career and um, I've done a lot of stuff in, in Celtic and Irish music, um, played some sort of Americana and bluegrass adjacent music. Um, and, and then pretty much since the mid two thousands have been kind of setting my stuff in the context of like, of a rock band. Um, and also touring solo uh, a lot too, but um in terms of how I approach Paula, I mean, one of the problems is, and this is a problem for all, I would say all songwriters, but I think it's probably applies to all kinds of things in life. As you grow older, your standards sort of shift. And so when I was younger, I would like, you know, write these songs that were just like, you know, I didn't, I didn't care if they were dogmatic. I didn't care if it was good art. I didn't, you know, it was just like, wow, fuck this, you know, whatever. And, and um, sometimes that leads to great stuff because you don't have creative filters, right? Like you're just, um, and, you know, it's why so many people um, make, you know, do creative work or make music, especially I think in their late teens and early twenties, and then can, you know, can never get back to it. Um or, or end up, you know, chasing it, you know, who knows if, you know, would, would Kurt Cobain be as angry at the age of 50, if he, you know, like what, what wouldn't kind of music he was making? Sadly, we won't know, but um, I would, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting. Um, but I also, the, the reverse side of that is that as, as you have those filters, if you're, if you're still engaged in, in your work in a real, um, you know, where you're pushing forward, because I think, that's a hard thing to do. Um, and I've really tried to do it my whole life in terms of my creative work is just push it forward and change it and, and, and learn and, you know, and, and all, and keep all of the things you have along the way, like, um, and all the things I've done, I kind of try and carry with me, um, and incorporate into what I'm doing now, but always want it to feel like it's evolving. Um, and so, but, to go back to your, your question, I think that, you know, my standards for what a, a good political song is have changed. Um, I got, I was, I became less interested in, um, and I'm not even sure I could write like the kind of cheerleading rally songs. Um, and there's, there's, you know, there's a, a there's a, you know, there's an amazing tradition of that. There's a huge place for it. I've, I've written a few successfully. I've written a lot unsuccessfully, but I stopped doing it. <clears throat> for whatever reason um i tried to get into kind of the emotional place for people for activists specifically um what it's like to go through these things what it's like to to have hope because if you're if you're if you're doing this work you have to have some you know if if it was if you're just like we're completely screwed which maybe we are but um you know you you'd go, I don't know, I don't know what you would do, but you would give up. Um, and so, you know, I always love like what, what Rebecca Solnit writes about the stuff, like, you know, hope, hope is a verb. It's, you know, all that, that, that kind of thing. It's not this fluffy rosy thing that that's out there. Obviously things are really dire. Um, I tried, so I try I tried to incorporate that emotional aspect into the songs. Um, I wrote a song about the WTO called memory against forgetting that kind of, um, that kind of does that. It's, there's this personal strain through the whole thing and just kind of about how it felt that week. Um, I, I then kind of got into, I also 
it's a hard thing to do, but I feel like I've done a few successfully of story songs where um, you're kind of tell, telling the story of what happened to people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of an, an old folk tradition of the narrative ballad of, you know, this is um, songs like Woody Guthrie's Deportees. He doesn't need to say these people are being mistreated. He just says, this is what, you know, this is what happened. And, you know, um, and so it's, it's similar to, so, so I've, I've written a couple songs like that one called sisters of the road um, about um, street kids in Portland. Um, one called Angola about um, a, a guy who was in prison there for many years for a crime. He didn't commit Hayes Williams. Um, and so I tried to do that more but all these things are, they're harder to do. So I sort of, um, I don't write as many political songs, except that it's my perspective. My perspective is in every song. So they all kind of have this under undercurrent of it, I think. Um, and I'm kind of bouncing all over the place, but. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, we want yeah, to talk. Just, to, just say, this is great. That's kind of what I was looking for. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, we want to talk specifically about some of your album songs, but this is kind of more ephemeral and it kind of follows up on what you just said. Um, and, and even though all of your songs aren't political, I mean, I think music is an important part. I think of the left more than any other political grouping. I mean, we've been to countless rallies and actions where there was a musician. I used to organize stuff in Houston. We'd always have local artists come out to play. So I always sensed that there was a real value in the, that, like kind of linking the arts to, to this kind of political resistance. And uh, I often <clears throat> cite the Springsteen's line, uh, I learned more from a three-minute record than I ever learned in school. Mm -hmm. So um, it's kind of generic and kind of ephemeral, I guess. But what, what do you see, like in the, in the political music you do or, and, and that anybody does or that you listen to, what do you, what do you think the, the purpose of that is? Are you trying to like teach? I mean, I'm a professor, so if I play a song, it's to kind of teach them something, I guess. Like, mm -hmm. Are you trying to kind of, give people insight are you an educator are you a, a journalist how do you view what the role of you know kind of music is in these larger social movements well i think i mean for what i'm trying to do specifically is is just kind of overarching is just is reaching people emotionally reaching people on an emotional level which sometimes you know a an article in a magazine a um you know just laying out the issues a lot of the a lot of the more um kind of clinical is the right word but like um you know a lot a lot of a lot of political issues are complicated heady they operate in an intellectual realm they operate in a socio-political realm sometimes those are really hard to get a grasp on um and so but if you lay it out for people as a here's a story and you draw people into it or you're talking about your own emotions about an experience through song you can um you can really get under their uh, under someone's initial um you know resistance to it if that you know as opposed to handing them a, a leaflet or whatever it's um it, and so that part i think is is really important there is the other thing that i was talking about before the the kind of rally songs um the the old folk tradition of that um and that that plays a, a huge role i don't you know I, I sort of feel like it's fallen off a little bit maybe that's maybe that's because of um you know it's so associated with the certain time period in american history um and you know there's a thing about about folk music and acoustic music is that you can just bring it to a rally really easily 
Um, and um, yeah, but I, I love situations where, you know, um, I remember in the nineties, I was involved in the, um, it went up and, you know, it was a small part in the, the clock with sound um, when there were protests about uh, defending logging and clock with sound and these, you know, massive protests that went on, on up there and um, midnight oil came and like played a show in a clear cut, you know, it was like, it was, it was just amazing. Um, but that's, a, you know, it's a hard thing to do to get a, get a full band going out in places like that. But there are places where, you know, and, and there are places where that can happen. Um, and I just think it's, I think it's a vital, I think it's a vital thing that there be a creative element to a political movement. And, and it's interesting too, that you say, you know, it's particularly, particularly the American left, it's like, well, or the left in general is like, there's this tradition of it. And then you always think like, you know, uh, there's just, there just aren't a lot of right-wing artists, you know, like they, it's just like, they just end up with Kid Rock and Ted Nugent every time, right? Like, Greenwood. Yeah. <laughs> Greenwood. They, they got Kanye now. So yeah, that's right. That's right. They can like diversify. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. Um, you know, I, I keep, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Lehrer, an old folk singer from the sixties, but uh, he had a song called Folk Song Army. And, and one, I think the last line is, you know, they may have won all the battles, but we had all the great songs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting what, you know, I, I know for myself, kind of the music I was talking about before, a lot of that, a lot of that 80s stuff, which is, you know, it's, it's a lot of it was pop music that, you know, came out of that world. But I think it was a really interesting time for music. And there was all this political content to it. There's a lot of, I think there's a whole genre of music that is specifically Cold War songs. Um that I'm kind of give a give a pitch for our recent show. We just talked to. Yeah, we uh, we actually there's a there's a new book out about the cultural Cold War uh, in the Reagan era. We actually just did a, a show with the uh, with the author, who's a historian in in Canada. Um, it's called "We Begin Bombing in Five Minutes," but we did a we did a big talk actually about music and punk music and. Uh, in that era, I mean, we talked about film and, and television a lot in that too. But it was a, it's a it's a the Cold War era for pop culture, particularly the '80s, the late Cold War, is quite fascinating. Yeah, um, like Jackson Brown's "Lives in the Balance" is a great way to introduce people to uh, Central America. Yeah. To, mm -hmm. So yeah, there's there's a lot of that going on. So I mean, I love '60s music, but there there's you know I listen to Tracy Chapman, uh, early early rap and hip hop, and Jackson Brown was was great stuff back then the no nukes stuff, you know? So yeah, it's, it's persistent theme. And I think it's really important and it's a great way to kind of, like you said, like kind of teach people something that's like, if I give some didactic academic speech, I'm not going to reach a lot of people, but, and you know, and I learned more from a three minute record than I ever learned in school. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of speaking of pop culture. Cause I, I feel like there's been started to become a little bit of a revival of like nineties, uh, some nineties political stuff. And so one, uh, 90s pop culture thing I've seen recently is the book The Overstory mm -hmm. um, uh, by Richard Powers. Mm -hmm. And I believe when I saw you play the live show and back in October, you actually have a song about The Overstory um, coming out on one of the new albums, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, if you want to tell us about that a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, this, this song is called The Distance Ahead. And I wrote it because um, I read The Overstory and um, you know, the overstory is a, it's, it's a book of fiction, 
um, but it's you know very directly based on um, on the on the forest defenders of the '90s and lots of specific things that happened. The timber um, war. The timber, the timber war. There's, there's a there's a Julia Butterfly kind of character. There's you know all these sort of archetypes of people that were involved in it are kind of characters in the book. It also does. It also goes deep into um, kind of deep ecology and science. Um, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that were involved in it. I think that, um, and maybe I was one of them while I was reading it, where I was like, "This is not how it happened," or like, "This isn't exactly right," or you know, whatever it was. But, um, but at this, at the end of the day, it's sort of a, this. It is a biocentric book that won the Pulitzer Prize. Like, it cut through mass culture in this way for something that is, um, you know, talking about you know how trees communicate with each other and and um you know and then kind of went into a lot of that history and a lot of history is there's that weird thing about the 90s where a lot of it is sort of weirdly erased in a way because it's you know in the 60s and 70s it seemed like everything was documented um and then in the 90s there was also just so much like in the music world suddenly you had the explosion of like indie culture and, you know, a town that a mid-sized city that might have had, a you know, a couple of concerts a year and some local bands playing suddenly has like, you know, thousands of touring acts coming through and playing multiple nights a week um, in small local clubs. And so there's not, you know, there's not a lot of documentation of a lot of that stuff. I think there are whole bands I knew in my life that were amazing and big and there's like not a YouTube video of them anywhere, you know, or like some grainy thing, you know, and um and I think that's true, sort of true of um, of a lot of the the environmental campaigns of the '90s. Is that it? Just sort of because it was pre-internet, because every moment wasn't videoed. Um, if if moments, if the people that did show up with a camera had to, you know, prove they weren't an arc first. <laughs> um, it's like really, um, there wasn't there's just not a lot of documentation of it. And so this book I think was really good. And, and you, I think it's important, you know, I sort of, whenever I talk about it on stage and when I talk about it in my life, it's, it's like this, this stuff actually happened. Like this book is kind of historical fiction, not fiction. And um, it's not exactly how it went down. There's some, you know, but it's, it's a beautiful, in the end, it's a beautiful piece of work. I think because it does do what I was talking about with music where it, it reaches people emotionally. You're caught up in the story. You're caught up in these individual characters and how their own struggles and conflicts and how they deal with, um, with this kind of gauntlet of, um, of this, the intensity of what was happening of, um, how, you, you know, just, just the whole thing. Um, and so I wrote the song because I said, well, I was actually there for a lot of this stuff. I, sh I want to, document it somehow and this is a lot of the songs on this uh, I, I these two albums i have coming out are um they were all written during the lockdown years because suddenly i just had i've been working so consistently in music on a number of different fronts and um that suddenly to have time you know obviously uh covid bad but um you know that weird thing of like to make you sort of have to have a clear head to write songs. And, and I think a lot of us who work in music, you're just in a, in a state of constant hustle and travel and, um, and it's, it's hard work. And um, so suddenly to have a little bit of 
I had a lot of things that were just kind of kicking around my head and, and then we can get into this more, but like the way time and memory kind of happened during that time was, was really interesting, I think for everybody. Um, and that worked its way into these songs. So I wrote the song, the distance ahead. And actually what I was talking about before the whole, it starts with kind of a, it's also the distance ahead. It's long. Um, and I, you know, I sort of joke that it's not as long as the book, but um, you know, it's probably a seven minute song, I think. Um, and it's a, and it's just a sprawling ballad. There's no chorus. There's no, um, and it's, it's, it sort of starts as like a generation X chronicle of like, you know, suburban kids and BMX bikes and hearing the replacements and, you know, um, and then it gets into like, uh, and then that, the woman, um, who gave us this whole rundown on earth first. And there's like, she's actually in the song like that, that instant, that thing I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation, there's a, a few lines about that. And then it kind of goes into uh, everything about the environmental movement kind of leading up to in that all through the nineties, leading up to kind of the WTO at the end of it. Um, and yeah, I kind of based it on like a, on like the Neil Young song thrasher, like that sort of like, uh, I, I don't, you know, usually songs are written um, as like either from a first person perspective or to someone. So it's, you know, you, I, and so this is suddenly like, this is sort of like speaking about a generation about, um, and so, and I write a lot of, you know, pizza, you're always said like, well, you know, these songs, it's like, I always like songs that start with we, you know, um, and the distance ahead is, is they, so it's like, it's kind of, I'm, personally woven into it for sure but there's definitely like a lot of just kind of a a zoom out looking at that whole time period and then it's called the distance ahead because um because this still stuff this stuff is still happening I mean, you have this you know earth first is um it's different than it was but it still exists and going up in bc where the clockwood sound protests were there's the fairy creek blockades that have been the largest uh environmental civil disobedience i think I think in North American history, definitely Canadian, Canadian history. For Canadian sure. history. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Um, and, you know, and that hasn't gotten a lot of play out in the world. Like uh, the media is not covering this. Um, you know, I think it made the cover of the New York times once. And then other than that, I talked to people who've been involved in the environmental movement their whole lives and they've never heard of fairy Creek. Um, and so I'm trying to have this be looking forward. And so the, la the last verse of the distance ahead is kind of like, where we are now and it's it's kind of a scene where i'm it goes back to sort of me and i'm driving the desert and um it's 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 a, it's really in the end it becomes a love letter to to my friends to people who are involved in environmental movement people we've lost um and then the la there's a there's a line in it like um you know when we were uh, it all happened in slow motion when we were memorizing roads you know, uh, pulled over at a service station, putting coins in a broken payphone, uh, crumpled maps in a glove box, like all the ways we used to travel, which was not that long ago. Um, that just seems so alien now that you could get lost in the world and get lost in the woods or get lost on a highway. Um, and then the last lines of it, there's, um, are about Jaguars coming back to the Chiricahua range, coming back over the Mexican border and, um, into into the mountains of arizona and new mexico and i i just i had to sort of end it with the critters because that's sort of what 
is the the ultimate point of of a lot of the stuff that gets lost is is um that it's that it's not anthropocentric uh and that that was a, a such a big part of um the earth first consciousness I've been over Snowden, I've slept upon Crowden, I've camped by the Waynestones as well. I've sunbathed on Kinder, been burned to a cinder, and many more things I can tell. My rucksack is off in my pillow, the heather is off in my bed. And sooner than part from the mountains, I think I would rather be dead. Oh, I'm a rambler, a rambler from Manchester way. Get all my pleasure the hard moorland way. And I might be a wage slave on Monday, but I have my freedom on Sunday. Folks, you're listening to Casey Neal on the Green Red Podcast. Uh, check us out at greenredpodcast.org if you want to know more. Uh, Casey, kind of, kind of thinking about that sort of like that '90s. You're, you know, talking about the sort of rise of indie rock in the '90s. Mm-hmm. Um, also talking about, you know, various political consciousnesses which were not necessarily beholden to like different political parties. Um, I've also kind of just been wondering what you think. Uh, you know, there's this sort of alt rock that, like, sort of alternative rock that really sort of like emerged in the late '80s and the early '90s, and then it very quickly became uh, corporatized. And so we saw like big labels taken on Nirvana or, you know, or, or Green Day or, or what have you. And then, and then you, um, I would say definitely a lot of your music feels very roots in Americana, but like not totally. I, I wouldn't, I totally can't, I don't put labels, try not to put labels on things, but there's also this like burgeoning folk punk scene that kind of came out of the nineties, which you were part of. And I'm wondering if you could actually talk a little bit about uh, that that sort of emergency, particularly in contrast to this corporatization of um, indie rock, alternative rock that was happening in the time at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, one last thing I, I want to that, that kind of dovetails on that that I was going to say is that when you're talking about my political consciousness uh, or like what were the things that brought me into it, another thing that happened was I drove down to Portland in 1989, 1989 with a friend to to see REM on the Green Tour. And Michael Stipe is going off all night, and I have a I have a bootleg of the of the show, and it, so I know this happened because <laughs> there it is. He's talking about uh, the def- defending Opal Creek, which was another area of old growth in Oregon, um, right? Threat and actually recently got hit by fires really horribly, but um, it, you know, and that so that really that really hit me. I had, you know that is a band that had you know I'm the perfect generation to have that band just warp my head you know, of what rock and roll was supposed to be. Like if I hadn't, if we hadn't heard them, you know, who knows, like South by Southwest might not exist, which has of course been totally corporatized too, but you know, um, we're, these- we're, we're the same generation REM. And I, I went to college in the South in like North Carolina. So very yeah, much like Athens, Georgia is very much a huge influence on my, on my musical yeah. evolution. Yeah, you'd be right into it. And they were like, you know, they were playing college campuses all the time and they were, it was such a, it was so different from, you know, Motley Crue or whatever was happening in music at the time, or, or, you know, a lot of the British new wave and they just like, they just changed everything. And, um, you know, and then being in Olympia was interesting because, and you just had no idea. Like, I, I mean, I saw, I saw Nirvana play, um, dorms, and they played the library 4300, which is like this big concrete room and the 
third floor of the library building in Olympia and Evergreen. And, um, and it was, you know, these shows had maybe a hundred people at them and, you know, just, it, it just, you had no sense that this thing was going to blow up in, in any way, but it was such a cool musical stew that this all this stuff was going on and there was there were different kind because it was really diverse i mean you would never you'd be in situations and I, and once i started playing on stage this would happen all the time where i'd be on a bill with like you know a hardcore band a hip-hop act i'm a you know a, a folk singer playing at the thing and you know there would just be these like wildly diverse um you know i'm not sure diverse racially but diverse um musically in a lot of ways shows and promoters were never like we need to put all the bands that sound alike on the same bill it was that there was this real like fluidity to it that was amazing and um and olympia also had you know um you know riot girl was happening um those bands were doing all kinds of great work uh, a lot of the people from that time period are doing amazing work to this day um and then yeah you had like some of the this sort of like the grunge butt rock stuff that's was I loved a lot of it um and I had I saw a lot of those bands at the time in hindsight a lot of it feels sort of macho um in in a way that's kind of not great and then of course the minute it was a thing the minute it blew up then you just had people from all over the country coming to Olympia in Seattle and like putting together that exact thing and then labels descending on them. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I was too young to like really be part of the fabric of what was happening. Like I would occasionally be on bills with it and I was there and I was an audience member, but I was young enough that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't someone that was making this stuff happen or knew all the, knew all these people until later. But from the outside, it seemed like, and what I'm talking to a lot of friends, you know, it seems like what happened was you would just have these, this music scene that organically happens because for however something, a cultural thing like that happens. And there's these webs of connection and community that happen to make it all work. And then when a whole bunch of money gets thrown in it, all those webs of connection go away and everyone like silos out and everyone, you know, is sort of, um, and it, you know, it led to a lot of, um, it's, you know, it's, it was, I'm still, I'm sad about it. I, I feel like it's, and I feel like there's still ripples, you know, I mean, even if it's Chris Cornell or Mark Lanigan, like these people with long stand, you know, who, I mean, I think Lanigan, especially, I'm not sure there's not, you know, the lead singer at Screaming Trees made amazing solo records. He was such a, I just feel like his part of the fabric of the Pacific Northwest, his music it was loved the world over, but like, it was just came up from out of Ellingsburg, Washington and out of the rain soaked highways and moss covered forests. And his voice was just like this. He was like our Leonard Cohen or something. He was just amazing. And, you know, dealt with drug addiction and, and mental health issues his whole life. And, and, you know, it's just kind of, um, there's still attrition, um, from that time period. Um, and, 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 but there are still some of those, some of those bonds as well, all still really exist too. And there are a lot of people have ended up in Portland. Um, and because, you know, until, um, 
especially through the early 2000s, Portland was still a really affordable place to live. And a lot of people from, from Seattle and Olympia and other places, kind of a lot of the remnants of those music scenes kind of um, have all been, been in Portland. And there's still some in Olympia and in Seattle too. But um, it seems like a lot of people from the Bay go up there now. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, I know a lot of people from San Francisco have moved to Portland. Mm -hmm. Kind of just like kind of get into like more present day stuff. I have, uh, two things to talk about one and you kind of mentioned this before but you know you're you are, are a touring musician you, you I've, you've been on the road a lot and you and your band the norway rats um have been on the road a lot and then this pandemic had i'm just kind of curious how how you have like kind of dealt with that like you, you've been back on the road here more recently yeah um, which i think is the first time you've been back out on the road since the pandemic correct yeah i mean for i mean ever since um ever since music started to kind of reemerge and after vaccination and um, everything like that, I, I sort of, for a while I was doing shows almost all in the Northwest. Um, I do them, I do, you know, one or two or two or three, and then there'd be a couple of weeks before the next. So I'd be like, well, if I get COVID, I'm not going to, um, it's, I'm not going to have a 10 day run where if I get it, I have to cancel half of it. And it's, that has really been crushing for people in a lot of cases and, and every, you know, every musician on every level has been dealing with it. I mean, in some ways, huge acts have as hard a time with it because they have huge crews. So their likelihood of, you know, their number of vectors is higher. Um, the economics of it are crazy, you know, to, to gas up a tour bus right now is a thousand dollars. That's, that's not my world, but uh, that is, you know, suddenly you have two cancellations and a month of everyone's work is just gone. Um and then, you know, smaller indie bands, everyone's out on the, you know, you've got five people in a van, same thing. Um, and so, you know, for myself, the band was kind of working in and around the Northwest, just like scattershot here and there and just getting, just getting our legs back. Um, I think, you know, a lot of work, but I think, you know, any kind of freelance work is there's that, which essentially every musician is, um, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's just momentum. You know, you're kind of, you're always kind of, there's personal momentum about, you know, how you get your business. There's personal momentum of, of people coming to your shows or buzz about the band, or, you know, you're just kind of like just pushing all the time, which is frankly, freaking exhausting. Um, but, and there are just so many people doing it. You just, you have to do it. Um, and I, one of the ways that I, you know, I kind of talked about this before, but like after, um, you know, I spent in the late nineties, I started playing a lot of traditional Irish music and I kind of put my music in the context of that a little bit. Um, and, you know, we could go into the whole history of the politics of uh, in, involved in that because um, there's a, you know, deep political traditions in, in, in Celtic music. Um, and, but that was, that really interested me. Um, but over the years, one of the ways I've made things work is I've, I've been a side person. I produce records. Um, I play in, I play in a band called the minus five uh, a lot, which is um, Scott McCoy from the young fresh fellows. And a lot of times Peter Buck from REM um, and a whole community around that band that exists all over the country and, and actually internationally too. And it's all focused around the songwriting of Scott McCoy, who's just an amazing friend of mine, an amazing hero of mine. Um, and just writes such good songs. And so I've been lucky enough to be in that band uh, here and there over the last 15 years. 
continue continue work playing Irish music, continue doing pr- production work. Um, I've done some theater things. Like you're just kind of always trying to build this thing around it because just me on the road is getting harder and harder. Um, and you know, another another whole thread we could talk about is just like the economics of of music now and and streaming services and what that means. And and a lot of the stuff that came out of the '90s came into this era where you could go on the road and self-press CDs and sell tons of them. You know, people that's how people listen to music. And so you you know, it was not unheard of for me to sell a hundred CDs in a night. Um, and now that's like, I can play to 300 people and sometimes sell like two, you know, cause, um, so anyway, that, um, that's kind of a tangent, but, um, the, the lockdown, like I said before, it kind of, it created this space initially that I think, you know, there's all this work, all these people have, you know, all these albums coming out now that we're recorded in that time. And it's interesting because people just had brain space. Um, if you're just back at your house and now home recording is so easy. So this new out, I have two, two new albums coming out. The acoustic one is all stuff I recorded at home. Almost there are a couple of other musicians on it, but I play almost all the instruments. It's more acoustic. Uh, and then we made, we have made a band album too called um, sending up flares that's coming out in um, June. Uh, and that, and both of them have in we with we've been there with the Norway rats. Yeah, with the Norway rats. Um yeah. and that one is uh both of them have things that are very much about the last bunch of years. I mean, there's a song on the Norway Rats record that's coming out in June, um, called City of Nerves. And it's about Portland in the summer of 2020 and all the mayhem that was going on. And yeah, we just, did shows, we did shows on that lift street organizers from Portland. Yeah. Um and the song, I kind of worried. I was like, well, now it's been like, it'll be three years almost by the time the song comes out. But then I kind of realized like, actually the song is about like how it feels when you're just, you know, in the Bay Area is like, you know, you have this experience, you know, where like suddenly you just feel like the whole place is like this powder keg of, you know, um, and just how it feels to be in a, and that could be, so that could be, you know. Um, those those weeks in June of 2020 were like that for sure. In downtown Oakland, like every night for, yeah. for a, a couple of weeks yeah um and so and then stuff on the acoustic album there's some stuff that goes back into like how how uh, time changed in our heads like suddenly things that felt like they were from three years ago just got really blurry and i you know just all kind of but then things like from the 90s and stuff like why i was able to write a song like this the distance ahead is kind of i suddenly they just these things came into focus that i hadn't thought about in years um and you sort of, I thought that was, you know, sort of fascinating and, and I'm not, you know, I'm sure there'll be a lot said about it or, or maybe not, maybe we'll just society will want to forget that this ever happened and won't process the trauma and we'll just treat it like we treat everything else. Um, but now getting back to it. Yeah. Getting back on the, I wanted to get, go on the road solo um, because then I'm just one COVID vector and I just wanted to like, share these new acoustic songs and then play a lot of old songs. Um, it was so great to do it, to see people. Um, and I'm going to do a lot more of it. And then the band's going to work next year, but, um, it's still, you know, it's still hard to do it. And, um, there are a lot of things that have shifted, um, to make being a touring musician, which was 
you know, um, I mean, again, I, I have total, I have such gratitude that I've been able to do this with my life. Um, and you know, there's also, um, and you know, it's the things now that are, make it even harder than it was before. Um, in, in, in many ways, being able to do things like what you do, actually, I feel like this is about like what I do as like a person who spends most of my days organizing people on around environmental issues or, or what have you. Bob may feel this way about being a history professor some days. Um, but like, it's just like, in some ways it's a, it's a very fortunate thing. It's not going into like a schleppy corporate job or anything like that. It's, you know, this sort of like freedom and to be creative and, and act in a different way than many other people act. I think it's like a, it's like in, in many ways a gift. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you know, so it's, and there, there are just so many people that do it. I mean, we're at this time now where, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we have time to really go down this rabbit hole, but like, you know, I, I'm seeing all this stuff about Spotify now because they did the, you know, end of year wrapped. And some musicians are like, look at all the streams we have. And some people are like, why are you, why are you bolstering this company that pays us nothing? And, and it's, um, it's just an interesting thing to like, um, but what, one of the things, there are a lot of things I think that don't get talked about in the context of that. One is that Spotify is one of many and, you know, Apple, Google, YouTube, all these things have like, you know, swallowed the music world and swallowed a lot of the independent music world. Um, and in this way, that's just, they, you know, it's just horrible. And they're all kind of, it's, they've all done it and singling out one over the other is kind of, um, but um, you know, there, there are things that don't get talked about. One of which is like, nobody has CD players anymore. Like there's a final resurgence, but it's really, it takes forever to make them. There's not a lot of the old machines were destroyed. Um, and there's right now they've hit the point where a hundred thousand songs a day are uploaded to Spotify. Just massive amount. And a lot of that is for the cool, super cool thing that people can make records at home really easily. And they don't have to have a hundred thousand dollars to go make a record in a big fancy studio like you did in the seventies or $20,000. And like you did in the eighties or, you know, whatever it is, it's like, suddenly you're just, um, can do it on a, on a phone or a computer and, and make new music. And so there's kind of an amazing thing about that, but it also means that just cutting through it's, you're just in a sea of it, you know. We we encounter that with uh, being a, a podcast, even a, a lefty, left leaning, anarcho socialist, people's history kind of podcast. There's millions of podcasts out there, and it's as easy as doing it on your computer with a mic and some ear headphones. Right. So totally. kind, kind of, kind of uh, although our livelihoods are less based on yours, but <laughs> still. It, um, yeah, I remember the. Um... So a bunch of years ago, um, I did a, I was on a road show, um, called the, the earth to Trump road show of resistance. And it was the first time I'd done a road show like that in, you know, I since remember that. and, um, I think the first show was in the Bay area. We were just getting it. We were just kind of figuring it out. And to, by the end, it turned into an indigenous rights road show. Um, and it was, it was really, it got really good towards the end. Um, with an amazing woman named Lila June, was on the tour as a rapper, beatboxer, um, an activist, uh, who's Dine and she's just the best. Um, but and if I, if I remember correctly, y'all did that post standing rock, right? Yeah. 
we did we did post standing rock um and but it was funny because we did the first round of it and um it was put together um by the center for biological diversity and they they just rallied people in the most amazing way with five weeks notice booked two cross-country tours for two different touring blocks and i was on one that went started in the bay area and then went down to la and then across texas and into florida and i mean we had like I think there were 800 people came to the show in Tucson. And then we had, we had one night in St. Augustine where we had 1200 people come out. Um, and it was really, it was kind of great because it was in a place that Trump had done a rally and it was just a kind of unprecedented. And all these people were just like, he wasn't even president yet. People are like, what are we going to do? And, um, and, you know, we just played music and we're like, I don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to fight it. And um, then we did a second round of it on the East coast um and it was in northeast cities much more liberal places um we were in big theaters trying to you know because we'd seen this momentum what we had done in january of that year and then but i remember being in providence rhode island and we had a couple hundred people at a show in a in probably an 800 900 seat theater and we were talking to people out front and they were like yeah you know you're you're the um there were all these you know we sort of thought like we're going to just be this like cultural force like out there doing this thing and suddenly like it was only that the center for biological diversity had rallied so incredibly to put this whole thing together so fast but everyone else had caught up and so by the time we're in providence rhode island we were like they were like oh yeah you know the turnout would have been better but there's been like seven resistance events this week in a mid-sized city like providence you know and we're like that's awesome you know um but yeah it's like you're you're just kind of everyone's doing their thing and and adding adding their bit and um yeah <laughs> don't have I, a great conclusion to that but <laughs> no, it's all good <laughs> yeah uh, i have one last thing to ask about unless bob has any other questions good <clears throat> yeah uh the, the one and you kind of touched on this already but just like to give our like audience a little bit of a like when can we expect the the two new albums and like where can we find them I, and and you know feel free to talk about like you know you have a website you have a Bandcamp page Mm -hmm. um yeah um my website is my name.com c-a-s-e-y-n-e-i-l-l.com um if you just search search for me on Bandcamp, um you'll find my records and nori rats records um they're in all the other places too that people listen to music um the new albums um right now um the acoustic one time zero land um i just press cds of it and i'm just selling them at my shows for now but it's in the spring it's going to come out in all the other places too and be or be able to order on Bandcamp. um and then the i think it's june 16th the nori rats record sending up flares comes out in the case of nori rats um and then so i'm hoping to um we i don't have a whole lot booked right now but i'm i'm working on it and we're hoping to you know play 70 80 100 shows next year and try and try and get a lot of places and and that might be me alone it might be the band it might be something in between but i feel like i've just had all this music that's just been kind of sitting in my world and and coming together and finally it's kind of all coming out at the same time so excellent yeah uh folks you've been listening to casey neal singer songwriter from portland of casey neal and the norway rats talking about a whole lot of politics and music um, Casey, it's been pretty awesome having you today. Been excited, like I said, I've been a, a fanboy for a long time. Excited that you got to come on the show. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. 
And before we leave, I want to uh, say a few words about two people who were uh, really important in the uh, intellectual and history world who died this week, uh, especially important if you study the Vietnam War, like I do, uh, George Herring and, and John Prados. <clears throat> George wrote uh, probably the first kind of major academic, uh, there was a trade book as well, a book on Vietnam, America's Longest War, which was used uh, at countless times. I'm sure it sold into the millions. Uh, George was just a, a really great a gentleman, a, a great scholar, supportive. Um, you know, I, I got to meet him and know him a little bit, and he was just always really uh, charitable and generous. Um, John, I knew a little better, John Prados, who was probably better known because of his work with the National Security Archive. Uh, John was just a, a, a bulldog when it came to getting documents, getting documents released. Uh, he wrote a lot of the uh, briefing papers for the National Security Archive, uh, but he did a lot of great work in Vietnam, too. Um, I met him long ago when I lived in the D.C. area. Uh, he would be at history meetings quite a bit. Um, if you had a question about a particular archival uh, collection or a set of documents, I would email John. If new books on Vietnam came out, I would, I would often email John. Uh, he just was this amazing source of information, uh, tireless in getting documents uh, released. Uh, just a, a really bright, he wrote books about Bill Colby. He wrote books about uh, the National Security uh, Council. He wrote books about World War II. He uh, created, um, in the old days, uh, because as an independent scholar, you're not going to get rich, he created board games, like military board games, when those were still popular. Uh, just uh, one of the, you know, genuinely bright, intellectually uh, active and curious people I've ever met. Uh, and so, um, you know, we've lost a lot of good people this year. And uh, George and John were really important, especially if you study, like I said, if you study Vietnam, then um, those two people, you know, meant a lot. And, uh, you know, um, just, you know, be thinking about them right now, uh, you know, because um, they were they were good folks who helped a lot of people learn a lot of uh, really good stuff about, you know, this important time in, in U.S. history. Yeah, I was a over 30 years ago, I was a sophomore undergrad and took my first uh, class on the Vietnam War, on the Vietnam War. And the uh, two books they had us read were uh, Stanley Carnell's Vietnam. I think it's called Vietnam History. Yes. Yeah. And then and then uh, George Herring's America's Longest War. And so he was very influential on me. And then like later in life, I became more familiar, more like when I was in graduate school around some of this, I became more familiar with John Prados's work. And actually even through, you know, the George W. Bush years and the Obama years, he was still yes. be blogging on national security issues and mm -hmm. on documents and stuff like that. And I found, I found just John Prados's work along as a, as a, you know, irreplaceable, invaluable yeah. resource. <clears throat> He put out a great uh, collection uh, about the invasion of Iraq. I think it's called Hoodwinked, really big. Um, the last time we chatted, like at any length, was uh, when the Ken Burns uh, Vietnam uh, program came out. I was like four or five years ago now, and you know, all of us were kind of getting our getting our uh, punches in, I guess. And so uh, John and I chatted quite a bit about that because he had written some stuff, I'd written some stuff, and uh, but he was like just a go-to guy if I had a question that I couldn't find like quickly. He was like human Google or a human library catalog, you know, just a, and just a great scholar. And I don't think he ever got, cause he wasn't an academic historian or an academic you know, professor like many of us. And I don't think he ever got really the kind of acclaim uh, and, and respect he, he deserved 
you know, probably because of that, you know, uh, but he was just uh, always there. He's just a presence at historical functions and just, uh, you know, a really great guy, the kind of person he's not, you know, uh, like we recently we've talked about like Mike Davis and Barbara Aaron Reich and Scott Lynn, you know, who are, you know, incredibly well-known people on the left who we've lost this year. Uh, but John is the kind of person he really is incredibly vital. Just, I mean, the, the stuff he does with National Security Archive and, and, you know, many of our history shows like the Cuban Missile Crisis show is largely based on stuff that the National Security Archive came out with. And John was like really an instrumental part of, of all of that. It's a great group of people. Um, and, and uh, you know, if you're not familiar with his work, check it out. It's these written like, countless books about so many different things, but a, a really great scholar. And, and a good guy, really stand up, good guy too. Yeah, uh, rest in power to to both of them. Yeah, um, folks, you've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Uh, don't forget to check out Casey's uh, albums at caseyneal.com or Casey Neal. Just search Casey Neal on Bandcamp. Um, and if you like us go to greenredpodcast.org and hit that support button or go to Patreon and become a patron of the Green and Red Podcast uh, at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And then also one last pitch, maybe not the last pitch, but another, one more pitch, which is the uh, Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar. We still have a, a number of these. And if you want to donate to the Green and Red Podcast, uh, just hit us up at greenredpodcast at gmail. And we'll send you a uh, poster uh, for a donation of $25 or more, which will include shipping. Uh, so, um, yeah. And everyone else out there, make a lot of trouble and misbehave. And we'll talk to you again soon. Multinational corporations dancing on the ruins of multinational corporations. Ha, 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 ha. Say goodbye to plastic and good. Goodbye to cars, no more convenience stores, hello to stars, no more Wall Street and no more Pentagon, thinking about these things makes me happy, we're dancing on the ruins of multinational corporations, dancing on the ruins of multinational corporations, dancing on the ruins of multinational corporations, ha ha ha. Corporations.
coming for you. 